ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dr. Utpal Dolakia. He holds the George R. Brown Chair of Marketing at Rice University. He's taught marketing and pricing to MBA students for over two decades and conducts research to advance our understanding of marketing strategy and consumer behavior. He's also the author of the book, How to Price Effectively, which is the topic of our conversation today. Football, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be back. Pricing decisions are the most important and impactful business decisions that a business can make and hold the keys to every organization's long-term financial performance, but they're also one of the most intimidating and avoided topics. So your book walks readers through how to think about pricing and how to approach it through this structured approach you call the value pricing framework. Can you give us the view from 30,000 feet? That is, what are the pillars that make up this framework? Yes, of course. So um, the first thing to point out is that uh, what makes pricing intimidating is that uh, many many business managers and entrepreneurs go about it um, in an unstructured way. So they just try to figure out how to price something by looking at what a competitor is doing or uh, just trying to mark up their costs or something like that. Um, I've been working on pricing issues for, I want to say now, more than like 15 years at least. And I've, I've worked with a lot of managers and businesses of all sizes, from really large corporations all the way down to people who are just starting out and starting their company. And what I try to do is come up with some kind of common framework which everyone who's thinking about pricing issues can use to make the pricing decision. The basic idea is the person can sit down and think through a set of issues in a structured way, step by step, collect the information about each of these uh, issues, then start thinking about how, how they should price and what the price should be. So in my framework, there are really four main factors or issues to think about. The first one is cost. For any uh, business to survive and remain viable, they have to cover their costs. The second one is customer valuation, which is simply how much the customer is willing to pay for the product or service. The third one is what I call reference prices. And um, essentially what I mean by that is what the customer uh, is using to, uh, as a com- frame of comparison to ev- evaluate the price. So typically it is a competitor's price or it is the price that the customer paid the last time. And then the fourth factor that the pricing manager needs to consider is the value proposition, which is the, uh, the branding and the, the actual kind of like level of quality that they are thinking of delivering, which help them to establish whether the price should be high or low relative to other prices in the marketplace. And can this framework be applied to both new prices and changing existing prices? Is this a universally 
um, useful way to think about pricing. That's right. one of the things which I've really tried to do with this framework, which is try to make it applicable to every single pricing decision, you know? And when you think about it, I mean, there are only these four factors. Right. So so now let's walk through each of the pillars in, in sequence. And first, if we're talking about costs, in film production, a lot of production companies price using cost plus. Why does making a pricing decision based solely on cost, not the way to go? And then what role, what weight do we place on on costs? Are all the pillars weighted evenly? Good. Yeah. So uh, those are two different questions. So let's begin with your first question about cost plus and the issues with cost plus. So in fact, cost plus is common in many industries. You go to many business to business industries, they tend to use some kind of markup pricing. In the restaurant industry or a bar, for example, I mean, most uh, most uh, businesses in, in that industry, in those industries, tend to use cost plus pricing. And there is nothing wrong with cost plus pricing. So let's be clear about that. Um, <laughs> okay. so, but let me quickly ex- let me quickly explain what um, what we mean by cost plus to people who might not know. Okay, so we are essentially saying that the manager tries to figure out all the costs involved in producing and delivering a product or service, and then applying some kind of a markup factor, so marking up that cost. So for example, if you want to use a markup factor of, uh, let's say, two, twice, you want to market, mark up your costs by twice, you are essentially going to simply calculate all the costs. Let's say it's $5 per unit. You multiply by that by two, and you come up with a price of $10. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem, of course, is that you are ignoring what I consider to be the most important factor, which is customer valuation. And um, what that does is uh, it, uh, it leaves a key piece of information out of your decision making. And you might end up with a price which is either too high, um, customers are not willing to pay as much, or it's too low where you have underpriced and lost out on earning a higher profit margin and, and higher kind of like amount of money for your product or service. So uh, as I said, there's nothing wrong with it, but uh, you are not using all the information that you could to make an effective pricing decision. And you are increasing the chances that your price is not the most effective and the most profitable price. Right. Well, it's interesting because the second part of my question is, do we treat each of these pillars the same? And in your discussion just now about cost, you said it leaves out the most important factor, customer valuation. And so so is customer valuation. If you were to look at all the four pillars, are they even or are they really, do you weight them? Good. So the, the fourth pillar, as I said before, is, is value proposition. And what the value proposition does is it kind of uh, calibrates how much weight you should give to the other three factors, which is cost, customer value, and reference price. And let me explain value proposition a bit more to uh, clarify what I mean. Okay, so value proposition is essentially uh, whether you are selling a, a sort of a high quality premium brand versus uh, economy uh, high value brand. So if you are selling a premium brand, you're probably going to focus uh, much more on customer value. And also uh, you might want to price much higher than your competitors prices to create this illusion of exclusivity and high quality and things like that. On the other hand, if you are selling a, a, a sort of a economy product, you are going to use um, 
you're going to wait costs a lot and so your costs are going to play a bigger role in your pricing decision making and you want you're also going to um, look at your competitors prices and try to be lower than your competitors so customers come to you because of the low price so the value proposition and the marketing strategy plays a key role in how much weight you give to cost, customer value, and then uh, the reference prices. So that's interesting. So the value proposition piece really helps you with calibration, which is very interesting because when we're thinking about value proposition, that's different from customer value. Those are two separate things, right? That's exactly right. Right. So So if my customer value, um, at least in the pricing context, what I mean is the customer's willingness to pay, which we can literally try to measure and figure out how much a customer is willing to pay for a given product or service. The value proposition on the other hand is uh, the branding and the business strategy behind the brand, which drives the price. In the same industry, for example, you might have a fast food restaurant, let's say Taco Bell, which sells really the uh, uh, low-priced food in the same category of fast food, or you might have something like a Panera bread or a Chipotle, which sells the same type of food, but it is at a much higher price point. Right? right. So the value proposition of Taco Bell, I would consider to be more economy, whereas Chipotle is much more premium. Right. The definition in the book of customer value it had to do that the product, the bundle of features provides quantifiable, functional, and hedonic benefits to the customer. Can can you define that? I understand that this is sort of quantifiable, functional, but what is um, hedonic? Sure. Good. Absolutely. So that's a really important part of trying to figure out how much someone is willing to pay for a product or service. Right. So um, when you think of any product or service, it, it, you can think of it as like a bundle or a package of uh, attributes and features. Right. Mm-hmm. So every feature does something to add value to the product or service. So just to use a example, um, if you go and stay in a hotel room for a night, the door of the hotel room gives you safety. The bed allows you to sleep. The bathroom allows you to do your business and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And each of those benefits is worth a certain amount of money that the customer is willing to pay for. And what we and so each of these benefits that I describe are kind of functional benefits. Right. Okay? They're necessary um, in order to even be in the game, aren't they? I mean they're all benefits that the customer absolutely requires. Can you imagine a hotel room without a bed, for example? No, right, right? exactly. <laughs> but we do not choose, or many of us do not choose a hotel room just because it has a bed and a, and a door which lock. We tend to go for the amenities it offers, the mm-hmm. kind of the branding it has and the image it produces. In a nutshell, how we will feel about staying there. Will it make us feel comfortable? Will it make, it, um, make us feel secure? Will it make us feel happy? So th- those types of feelings engendered by a product or service are what I refer to as hedonic uh, features and benefits. And from a pricing perspective, People are willing to pay, and often they're willing to pay a lot more for the hedonic benefits than for the functional benefits. Our job when we are trying to figure out the price is to figure out how much is someone willing to pay for each functional benefit, the the door which locks the bed and, and and so on, and how much is someone willing to pay for the branding and the 
the amenities and the feeling that the hotel brand gives to that consumer. You do a lot of work with consumers. Are consumers really able to tease those things out? I mean, I think about a hotel and it's the gestalt of the hotel. You know, I, I mean, I there are certain things which absolutely required bed, bathroom, locking door. But then the other things, uh, it's 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 hard for me to say this and versus that. So if I'm trying to develop a price, do I need to list all the features? Because not every feature will interest every consumer, right? Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. And this is a very uh, significant issue, right? So um, in the pricing world, if you ask someone, how, if you ask a consumer how much they're willing to pay for, let's say, uh, a bed or a, or a door which locks, it's really, really hard for anyone to tell you. Mm. Um, right. And so what you need is you need some kind of like, a, a, how shall we say, reasonable and kind of like a, a questioning process or a research process, which makes kind of like the job easier for the consumer to give you this information. And it turns out that we have many different methods which allow us to elicit um, the valuation of these consumers. So Mm -hmm. one common method which we uh, use uh, to do this is called as choice-based conjoint analysis. So we ask questions to the consumer which are about hotel rooms, okay? So it is like about an entire hotel stay, which includes all the features. But Mm -hmm. by asking them a series of questions and asking them to choose between different types of hotel rooms, uh, one after the other after the other, we are able to then collect the information that allows us to uh, basically decompose the customer's willingness to pay for each feature. We are trying to figure it out through a statistical procedure. Right. Now, the other question I had had to do around the quantifiable functional benefits. A lot of times when you are selling a service, certainly a a business-to-business service, the people want to know, what's my ROI going to be? How does it work if you're selling something where success is the absence of something like risk management, or it's hard to make an attribution, you know, a lot of consulting, you know, it's hard to draw a straight line. How, how are, is somebody who's doing that pricing meant to tackle that conceptual piece? Good. Yeah. So that. so now again, we have to distinguish between, we used the hotel room example before. Um, and what you are asking about is something uh, quite different that we often encounter in the service. Business business yeah. Service world. oriented. Yeah. Uh, service oriented and also in the business to business world, even for products, you know, like an oil rig, I work with uh, oil and gas companies and let's say they want to price uh, uh, the rental of an oil rig. You know, or a consulting service, or you, as you said, or a lawyer's serv- a legal service, you know, a, how much do a lawyer charge? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these kinds of questions kind of have uh, a similar answer. So again, it's the issue of customer value and trying to figure out how much the customer is willing to pay. But in this case, the emotional aspects are not that important. It's really the functional aspects which drive the pricing. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do there is we need to figure out how the customer is benefiting from our product or service, right? So what is the economic value that our product or service is delivering to that customer? Um, and, and to really do this, to answer this question, you, the company needs or the manager needs to actually work with a 
customer in detail to really understand how they are using the product or service. Right. So, um, but it, it essentially boils down to either making the customer more money or saving the customer money. Right. So it's either uh, revenue generation or cost saving. Right. And trying to quantify each of those functional benefits in strictly economic terms. Mm-hmm. I see. I understand how you could work with a a customer if you're already in business and you're tweaking prices. But if you're launching a new business and you don't have any customers yet, how do you go about testing prices? Do you do research with prospective customers? In a nutshell, yes. But let me explain. <laughs> so one thing one thing uh, we, we have to be a little bit clear about because listeners might get a little bit confused and they might especially think that this is too difficult to do. It is not worth doing. But keep in mind, what we are saying is uh, it's often much easier for one really important reason, which is that uh, in most industries, there are already uh, sellers selling a very similar type of a product or service. Right? So let's take the example of a consulting service. The question when we, we ask when we are trying to figure out customer value is, if the customer doesn't buy my consulting service, whose consulting service are they going to buy? And what is the price of that uh, competitor's consulting service? Okay, let's say that the, the competitor is charging $100 an hour. Okay, the next step then is to figure out how is my service going to be different from the competitor's service? I'm going to, uh, am I going to offer higher quality? Or am I, do I have something to offer which the competitor does not have? And let's imagine that my service is exactly identical to the competitor's service and the competitor's service is priced at $100 an hour. By definition, I have to price my service then at the same $100 an hour because I don't have any differentiators. Now, let's imagine that I offer the customer an additional $25 per hour um, value. Okay. Only then can I change my price and uh, price my consulting service $100, which my competitor is charging, plus this additional $25 of value that I'm delivering to the customer. And then my consulting price becomes $125 per hour. Really important point that I want to make is that we are not trying to figure out the um, willingness to pay off each functional benefit. We are only trying to figure out the willingness to pay for the differentiators compared to the competitor's price. Right? Because uh, in any situation, the competitor's price is going to uh, create some kind of a constraint. We cannot price our product or service too far away from what our competitors are pricing. And this idea also applies to new services, right? So yes, you are definitely going to involve your prospective customers and use them to do some pricing research. But you also have to figure out your competitors' prices and get a good understanding of what those prices are. Because they're going to set some boundaries on how far you can go in either direction, higher or lower, compared to that competitor. Right. Well, one of the other things that I found very interesting in reading the book and this is not just, let's say, a competitor's price, but certainly if we're, th- if we're talking about product prices, is reference prices and how they change how consumers feel. And it doesn't even have to be the same item. You related a story about Walmart and Coca-Cola pricing and that they were able to charge more when the beverage was 
in mixed, it was also for sale near the clothes, which were at a higher price point than when the beverage was in the beverage aisle where it was with all the other beverages. Now what's at play there? Why will I, as a consumer think a higher price is more acceptable if I'm simply seeing other things that are totally different that are more expensive? Good, yeah. So that's another really interesting question. And it's a question which, if we answer it well, allows us a lot of flexibility in pricing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me explain this. Um, a, a sort of a, a misunderstanding or a myth that many of us have is that our customers know prices really well and they have excellent price knowledge. But the reality is most customers do not know prices and have poor price knowledge. What that means is they are uh, trying to figure out whether a particular price is a good price or, or not. It's too expensive on the fly. They're trying to figure it out as, as they are making their buying decisions. For us, from a pricing perspective, what that means is we can take advantage and we can kind of try to set up a context in which the customer places a higher valuation on our product or service. And that's where reference prices comes into play. So just to give you a very simple example, people almost never can evaluate individual prices uh, really well. Okay, so for example, if I tell you, if if I place a bottle of really high quality olive oil in front of you, and I say this olive oil costs $15 for a liter. For many consumers, they are going to have to do a lot of work and thinking to figure out whether that $15 is a good price or a bad price, or it's too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if I place two bottles of olive oil, I say well, one is the kind of like the $15 oil, and then the other one is the store brand, which is $7, okay? Uh-huh. Now you suddenly have a context for evaluating that $15 of a price and trying to figure out, is it worth buying this high quality oil and paying more than twice what the store brand costs? My point is, you can change the context, right? So I can make the $15 oil appear expensive if I place a $7 bottle next to it and make it look like a really good deal if I place a $30 bottle next to it. And so that is where the flexibility in pricing comes into play. We have as managers and as the marketers, we can use a lot of creativity and we have a lot of different avenues to set up the context in which the customer evaluates the price. Well, that one of your stories that I found fascinating uh, was around a jewelry person who you worked with who went to trade shows and the, the business of creating almost like a decoy item, a purposely high priced item, which then allowed all the other items to appear better to the buyer. Um, The interesting thing about decoys is the original research was done in consumer psychology on the decoy effect way back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, And for a long time, most lay people, most consumers had never heard the term decoy effect. So when we used it in the marketing world, it was very, very effective. Actually, a lot of the appliance manufacturers use it. Jewelers use it, like the example I told you. And the basic idea is, is you want to offer a really ultra expensive item in your product line, which is clearly a bad value. (laughs) And the goal is not to sell that expensive item, but to make the other items in the product line look really well-priced and really attractive. Right. Now what has happened in the last few years is this, this notion of a decoy effect and the decoy product 
has kind of like permeated all over the place. I mean, you, you see people talking about it on blogs, in uh, chat rooms, all types of places. My, my, most of my students know what a decoy effect is even before they take my pricing class. And the result is that consumers are much smarter. So they're not as susceptible to be fooled. You know, they, they can, many of them can figure out that this company is trying to use a decoy to get me to buy something else. And so they react accordingly. I'm surprised what by that because if our, if our example with the olive oil, the psychology at play with the olive oil is what you're also using with a decoy. It's, it's a comparison, isn't it? Emotionally, I would imagine being worked on still. You know. Absolutely. Right, right. So I'm not saying decoys don't work. They, they work, but they are kind of like not working as well as they used to simply I because see. people are a little bit kind of immunized to it. I um, see. Most consumers need a lot of help in kind of figuring out whether the price is a good price or not, you know? And I mean, there are uh, literally maybe, maybe a dozens of ways to do this, right? So I'll just give you a couple of simple examples, right? So going back to our olive oil story, remember the bottle of olive oil is $15. I can simply say, I can just in, on, the, um, on the shelf where this olive oil is being sold, I can simply say most oils of this quality cost between $20 and $25. And today this item is on sale for $15. So suddenly the 15 looks a lot more appealing. Or I can say that uh, today, this price is uh, applicable only for today. It's only $15 today. It's normal price is $25. I can do all sorts of creative things to make that $15 price look uh, appealing. I don't necessarily have to sell a a decoy item, uh, olive oil price at like $50 or something like that. Mm. That is one way, but there are other ways also, I guess is my point. Right. To your point that pricing is so important for success, what about a situation when the buyer can exert so much total environmental decision on the pricing, you just have to submit to it? The example would be you have an increasingly consolidating group of buyers and they have a sourcing group, which then says, okay, we're going to have a reverse auction where you bid for price, you bid on your price against a deliverable. And it's it, so it's purely you put in a number and you can't see what anybody else's numbers are, but you can see your rank. So you know that you're the most expensive or the least expensive, but, you know, or somewhere in the middle. But, but so how are they accounting for quality differences between all these bids? They're not. You bid, you lock in your price for a year, and then we're not guaranteeing you any work, and then we'll pick from among you. So it's a game where you try to figure out, can I survive on this price? This is quite common in the B2B, in many other B2B spaces. The way to react as a seller, the way you react to that is you price what you think is a reasonable price for yourself, given your quality, okay? So you have to have some confidence in the quality of your product. But as long as you have uh, confidence, you should not be shooting for being the lowest price vendor in that situation. It's like a power dynamic between the buyer and the seller. The buyer is more powerful than the seller. But the point, of course, is they still want high quality. So even in a situation like this, I think it pays to, first of all, uh, have and hone a really high quality, create a really high quality offering, and then price reasonably 
Well, I mean, for what the price you th- a price that you think makes sense, you know, right? Not and the just lowest stay, price. and then just stay to it, and and feel confident, confident with and it. And I think they are still probably going to go to the highest price vendor if they think that they have, that has the highest quality, you know. Huh. Most B two B situations, they use some kind of like a formula, so they give weight to price, they give a certain amount of weight to price, a certain amount of weight to different quality features, uh-huh. and they come up with a kind of like a final value based on uh, weighting different things, not just price. I think the problem arises in a situation like this is when all the vendors panic and price in a foolish way, you know, so they all underprice. That's right. why you end up with uh, with the seller, sorry, the buyer winning in that situation. The only reason for that is that the sellers, they were not smart about pricing. If every seller was smart, whoever won would make uh, make a good profit margin. You know? Right, right. Well, it's interesting. I, the the anxiety, the seller anxiety, and or the seller, if the community of sellers prices badly, it creates an environment. You know, everyone loses. You are only going to be successful to the extent that everyone else, all your competitors are pricing effectively. You know, so if your competitors are really foolish about pricing and underpricing, there is not much you can do. Fascinating. Well, we're actually, we, we're running out of time and the book is so filled with so many interesting things, um, things about the price point, whether there are odd numbers or even numbers or fives or nines, the whole conversation around now that you've set the price, uh, is it successful or not? But we can't get into them now. So in the show notes, I'm going to have a click to purchase link. And if you are a person who is looking to price, this is a great resource. And uh, thank you so much for spending time to talk about the the big ideas that go into your very useful model. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. And I should just say that price is one place where every business owner and entrepreneur has an opportunity to make a huge impact on their financial performance. You know, so they should be paying more attention, no matter which industry they work in or how big their organization is. Great. Thank you so much. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.